Good evening. Is the volume okay in the back? Thank you. Tonight I'd like to um, talk about befriending difficult mind states. I noticed during the group meetings um, a lot of people shared about difficult or challenging mind states that had been visiting them. And there was a few in my groups who actually shared that speaking them or saying them out loud was very helpful. And also, for myself, I've noticed, and I heard other people too, that sometimes just hearing them being expressed by others is actually helpful. And um, there's, in the Buddhist teaching, there's five very specific mind states that he identified as obstacles in meditation and obstacles in life, specifically when we're not aware of them. And uh, and just to see their impersonal, universal nature, I thought, why don't we do an experiment? And if you like, just raise your hand if you have noticed this particular challenging mind state. Craving. Anyone? (laughs) Maybe just look around. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. Anger or frustration, ill will. (laughs) Not you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about sleepiness and dullness? I'm on that team. Um, restlessness, worry. (laughs) And the last one, hindrance, doubt. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And um, the Buddha said, he said many things about these very five specific mind states. And one thing that I want to share with you is that he said, when you're not aware of them and they're present, either one of them or several, it's hard to see the good in yourself. It's hard to see the good in others. And it's hard to see the good in both oneself and others. Just check for yourself if that's true. Maybe just contemplate. That's what actually drew me so much to Buddhism, that I could figure it out myself. Come and see for yourself. Maybe just think about one of these challenging mind states that you might have noticed today. Is it true that then it's harder to see the good in yourself, or in others, or both? We're not aware of them. They can kind of cover our vision, our clarity. I want to mention a lot during this talk that they're very human. (laughs) And also that when we are mindful of them, a mindfulness that is balanced, not opposing or favoring, when we're really present with them, they actually become opportunities for growth. 
I've had teachers and I would say that I was just seeing so much anger. And then the response was, good, be grateful. Because there's something really special about this quality that we've been cultivating over three days now that supports us to be with these difficult mind states. Not just the ones that we have internally, but also the ones that we see in others. Or when we have them together. And so the first one, traditionally is translated as sense desire or craving for pleasure. It's like wanting something. We want to experience something through these six senses. The mind wants something that it doesn't have, but it knows it can probably get it. This craving quality is kind of fixating. Your mind gets really focused on what it wants. I sometimes have this image of, um, in the forest near New York, you have these vultures, turkey vultures. They're kind of circling around, looking for a cadaver. That's how sometimes my thoughts feel like when this craving energy is very powerful. We've really been quoting our dear mentor and teacher, Joseph, a lot, Joseph Goldstein, and he talks about the migraines of desire. It can be just so empowering and so intense, also just for the mind itself, for the brain. And the first thing that the Buddha is talking about is also, can you start to investigate this? And one suggestion was, can you investigate the conditions that lead to craving? Very often, it arises because we bounce off what the Buddha called a noble truth of suffering, of pain, or just that something is not completely satisfactory. And we bounce off of that truth, and we want something else. Have you noticed, for example, sometimes being on retreat, being a little bored? I have. <laughs> and when I'm not aware, and I'm kind of not really present, so often my to-go-to place is fantasizing. Once when I was sitting over there for like the whole early, early morning sit, which usually is very present, I'm very present, I was bored, and I started to write a whole book in my head. From beginning to end. I even have a title for it. You're never too late for the present moment. <laughs> oh my god. Hmm. And when we start to pay attention and actually name this energy of craving, desire, you see it everywhere. You see it within yourself, you see it with others. And you see it in society a lot, too. One thing where I notice it a lot in my daily life is around the cell phone. Just in the morning. I don't have it next to my bed anymore. I have it on the kitchen. 
But even when I go for my morning, you know, pee, I'm already, ah, can I feel like, should I watch it, should I check it? (laughs) Craving for some sensual input. And I really want to, again, emphasize all these hindrances that I'll be talking about tonight, they're not a personal failing. They're very natural. One time I was quite surprised. Maybe this is because of my conditioning growing up in Holland. But in New York you have a lot of ads that say, pain, question mark, you need law. (laughs) I thought you need care. And that just made me think, you know, that's about, you know, money. Sharon, she was teaching at the Community Meditation Center online, Sharon Salzberg, and she said that she, she shared this experience where she would be driving on the West Side Highway in New York City, and at that time, Honda had a new type out, and the, 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 the name of the car was Crave. And she said three times, I saw the billboard, Crave, Crave, Crave. And she would just wanted to make that point, and then all of a sudden she goes, by the way, I ended up with a Honda. <laughs> so it works. It just kind of gets into us. And um, the Buddha also uses a lot of images to describe an experience, especially for the visual learners. And here he has this image of a bowl of water that probably in India was used as a mirror. And he said, when there's craving, that bowl of water is filled with dye and turmeric. If you look at it, you can't see your own reflection. And also to kind of notice, how does craving feel in the body? To really kind of investigate is is a very helpful tool. And I did a lot of teaching of high school kids meditation in New York. And one time they actually asked me, Bart, can we do a class on cell phone addiction? I thought, what would be the best way to do this? And I came up with this idea of putting a yoga mat in the middle. And at that school, they could all bring their cell phones. So they all put their cell phones on the yoga mat. There were 30 of them. And I had called my wife, said, Chantal, call me and text me. So I also asked anyone, everyone to put it on full volume. Then the instructions were simply to sit and watch and just notice your body and mind. And just after just 10 seconds already, mm-hmm, first text. Then my wife called, you know, my ringtone. And it went on and on. And I, in myself, noticed this, this leaning forward. Just when that notification sound comes. Oh, it's in the body right now. There was one girl, Stephanie, never forget. She goes like this. Then she goes like this. And then she does. And she actually got up, walked, picked up the phone, looked at it and goes, not for me. <laughs> Who has the same ringtone? And then we unpack that experience. This is craving. And then we also talked about that there is something different from pleasure. Craving is that feverish energy of that hole in the heart that needs filling. 
pleasure is something different. So the first step, as we've been kept saying over and over again, is to recognize it. This technique of denoting this gentle touch so that you can look at it. But then the Buddha had another suggestion, and that is, can you notice its absence? So maybe just pause for a moment and just check internally. Is craving present or absent right now? So here we have a meditation instruction to be mindful of something that's not there. It's really helpful to use that in your practice when you've been having it a lot. So that you start to see that it's not always there. It's impermanent. Another thing that I find really helpful when craving is present, or any hindrance, challenging mind state, is to ask, how is the mind relating? So often you get more information of experiences unfolding in the moment, but you're not seeing it so clearly. And what I do that when craving is strong, I so often see judgments. Am I still not over this? Judgment. So that's another thing that you can really actively engage when you are visited and recognize accurately a specific challenging mind state. The second one is ill will. That's how it's translated often. But I also uh, like the word aversion, frustration, anger, being mad, or feeling resistance. And now that bowl of water, the Buddha uses the image of it being boiling. You can't see your reflection again. Hot-headed, warm. It feels warm when there's that anger, frustrating energy present in the body. It has so many manifestations. And I was just kind of reflecting this afternoon, like how would it manifest for me on retreat? The most resistance I have for the schedule is the walking meditation after the Dharma talk. I feel so inspired and entertained and then walking. Now, where do I go now? It sucks outside. Oh, it's just resistance. Can that be known? And I also was instructed in Thailand in the beginning to focus on the rising and falling of the belly as my anchor. And he said, just say that, rising, falling, rising, falling. And although I, it, it did get, make me get into meditation, I did not like it. It didn't feel neutral for me. It felt like work. It felt like I had to kind of pay attention and I couldn't let the breath breathe by itself. It was only until I was asked, 
what is the mind's attitude to this experience that I realized I have aversion to mindfulness of breathing? I didn't even dare to say it because I thought that's, where the, that's what's needed for meditation. It was so helpful. How am I relating? And then again, the Buddha's asking, contemplate in that moment, what might have conditioned this? What are other conditions around anger? And then once I was teaching a class with a group of kids who were in residential treatment, and one girl said, she shared, when I feel angry, I ask myself, what do I care about? And that all of us in that room were like, yeah, that's a good question. And I actually thought that's what the Buddha would suggest too. Like, what else is here? What's conditioning this? Anger doesn't arise by itself. It's conditioned. Because it's such a natural response to being treated unjust, being lied to, feeling violated, or having witnessed that someone is going through this, or groups of people going through this. And in the middle schools where I used to teach mindfulness, anger was such a great topic to reflect on. And when I would ask the kids, what is now the number one thing that gets you angry? They said, when people lie, when you know that you're being lied to. Maybe pause for a moment and just notice, when was the last time you felt frustration? Or maybe full-blown anger? What conditioned it? first step using this practice is to recognize it with this kind receptive awareness. It's the first step in befriending it. And once I had this major insight, I realized the part of me that is mindful of the anger is not angry. Mindfulness can know anger, but it's not made out of it. It's something different. That was so helpful. The anger didn't go away, but it was so helpful to realize this. The part of you that's aware of the anger is not angry. And this particular practice of this noting is not only helpful internally, it's also very helpful to notice it externally. We are socially wired to pick up when other beings are angry, when animals are angry. And I am still sometimes feeling that, but especially in the beginning of the pandemic, 
I was presented together with my wife to homeschool a first grader. Wow. He had a lot of frustration. And sometimes I would just in a moment like that pick up his frustration too. I would totally merge with it. And then I, I practiced like, what would it be like if I go, there is frustration? And I did that from time to time. And instead of merging with his frustration, I met it. I was there for him. But I wasn't picking up that frustration, that anger in the way that I would do if I'm not aware and just acting out of habit. And again, that invitation in your investigation when you've recognized it, how am I relating? I sometimes feel shameful then. Oh, shame's here. Or I'm telling myself, I'm not supposed to, I hear myself saying that, I'm not supposed to feel anger. And to, when you feel you can do it, check what it's like in the body. How is it manifesting? And then, of course, we can also bring in what we've been cultivating, these heart qualities, kindness, compassion. The Buddha said to his seven-year-old son, uh, cultivate meditation on loving-kindness. For by cultivating loving-kindness, ill-will is banished. Cultivate, too, a meditation on compassion. For by cultivating compassion, you will find harm and cruelty disappear. So I just invite you to pause again and to contemplate. Is that energy of resistance, anger, frustration, present or absent right now? third of these mind states that the Buddha called a hindrance is a couple. It's called sleepiness and dullness. For so many, being in this pandemic for so long has been exhausting. And maybe you might feel that some of that tiredness, some of that exhaustion is actually surfacing right now on the retreat. Very often when we step out of daily life, we give more space also to the body to really be listened to and to express itself. And I also noticed a sense of dullness the last few months, not so much this month, but the months before, where I was noticing that I didn't have a lot of things to look forward to, felt like. It felt like I was missing, in Dutch we call this word, I said this in the interview, in the group meetings, forpret, anticipated joy. Even when people were asking me in December, Bart, do you look forward to go back to IMS? I go, we'll see. <laughs> I 
it even happens, you know? And it kind of made me inactive, dull. Could see it also in my work, where I was like, oh. This is a universal mind state, feeling dull, feeling sleepy. And I want to bring Dara in a room. Once I was teaching a retreat with Dara Williams, who was supposed to be on this retreat with us too, and, she, and, and Jack Cornfield, and he was leading. And we were in front of 150 people. And it was after lunch, 2.30, and I didn't have to lead. And I only thought I did this once. Just once, you know? <laughs> I might have done it twice. <laughs> just this, this nod, right? And then Jack rings the bell and goes, so it's very common to feel sleepy, universal mind state. It can happen to anyone. Right, Bart? (laughs) I was grateful to be an example, I guess. (laughs) But what does that feel like? What does it feel like to be sleepy? Could that become something you're interested in? Or feeling dull? Because I find that the body gets a little heavy. Very often when I think of what conditions sleepiness on, on a meditation retreat or in meditation, it's like in the beginning I'm quite concentrated. I'm even like, whoa, I love this. And then I kind of dull. So there's less energy and I kind of move into a dreamy state. It's quite peaceful. The simile of the bowl of water now is one where the bowl of water is filled with algae and plants can't see your reflections, like that warm blanket. And when I started to experiment with kind of staying with sleepiness and dullness, I noticed that sometimes I was actually dull or sleepy just to not be with an experience, to retreat from experience by becoming dull or sleepy. Especially in the evenings, I should still do some work. And I convince myself and Chantal, my wife, I'm so sleepy. I should go to bed. And I've seen it so often on retreat that now in daily life I go, hmm, I actually know. This is just the mind retreating from something that's unpleasant. Again, bouncing off of this, what the Buddha called this first noble truth of things not being completely satisfactory. How can you be with sleepiness? The Buddha had a whole list. <laughs> we shared some of that. <laughs> okay, he said, for example, bring more energy. When, you, when you're here sitting, open your eyes. I saw someone already very skillful the other day standing up. If you're in your room, splash some water, he suggests. My favorite is where he goes like this. Maybe you can kind of pinch your earlobes and pull on your ears. I've tried it, it doesn't really work for me. But look at all the statues. I don't know. The Buddha might have had that too. I just really don't know if that's true. Please don't quote me. And the last one, the last suggestion was this. Take a nap. Sometimes we are just tired. Also on retreat, 
please notice and listen to that. Oops, my bad. Listen to that and rest. Noble resting time. But when you can watch it, sometimes you see it's just this wave of energy that comes and goes. Seeing the impermanent nature of it, which is so empowering to see the impermanent nature of challenging mind states, whether they happen within you or you see them happening with others. And then check the attitude again. Like last night, I woke up a few times. My attitude towards sleep is, I want you. (laughs) Then I'm on retreat sometimes and I'm already nodding off at 10. And I'm like, no, I don't want you now. It's the same phenomenon, different attitude. I just want to pause again and do that little experiment. Is sleepiness present or absent right now for you? Or dullness? The next hindrance. So we've been reflecting on craving, anger, sleepiness, dullness. The next one is a pair, too, of two very similar mind states, restlessness and worry. Let's start with restlessness. The thoughts that go with restlessness for me is like, how can I fix this? What I should be doing this should. Every time I hear myself think in English, should, there's some restlessness. So often it comes like, like a jolt when you realize, I haven't done this. I haven't answered that email. I haven't reached out to this person. It's like constricting. On retreat, I so often all of a sudden realize, oh, this person, how are they doing? I should have been there more for them. And then my mind starts to think my way through a problem. All this restless energy. Worry has an element of fear in it. Often for me, They start like this, what if, what if they're not going to like this? What if this is going wrong? And again, this reflection, what conditions worrying thoughts or restlessness? I've noticed in my practice that when I have a longer period of time, I sometimes have memories of things that I regret, that I feel guilty about. Triggers some fear and worrying. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I really like this from Mark Twain. He says, without understanding, 
Our worries and thoughts create huge, unnecessary problems. And my life is filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. (laughs) Worrying is like praying for stuff you don't want. And, And the bowl of water, the simile now, is the water's being touched by the wind. You see all the ripples. You can't still see yourself, so you can't see the good of yourself. And so, recognizing this is the first step. I usually call restlessness racing mind. Oh, racing mind. Just by even me saying it gives me a sense of, oh, you're here. Racing mind. And then to see if I can allow myself to feel it. That's already the compassion, the kindness in the mindfulness. The Buddha was also not constantly saying, just be mindful of it. I thought that for a really long time. I also thought, as long as I'm mindful, it should go away. I had a hidden agenda in my mindfulness practice. Oh, I'm... Sometimes I've noticed, oh, I'm mindful and it disappeared. And then I was disappointed when it happened again. The mindfulness of it didn't make it disappear immediately. And so it can happen that you feel like, oh, it's overwhelming. It's just too much. Then the Buddha suggested a very skillful thing to do. And that is to redirect awareness to an other experience happening in the moment. When you feel overwhelmed by a challenging mind state. And specifically for restlessness, the Buddha suggested calm breathing. To use the breath to calm the whole system. And one time, this Tibetan master was interested in my work and he came to visit the juvenile detention center I used to teach in. His name is Yonge Minyo Rinpoche. He came in his red robes together with his assistant Tashi and they were witnessing the class. And then afterwards, uh, the young man asked uh, all kinds of questions but also asked him, um, what do you do all day? <laughs> He said, well, I meditate and I teach and sometimes I go on retreat. And I remember one guy asking, what is a retreat? Is that a tribe or what is it? So I said, Mr. Rinpoche, please explain. And he goes, well, when I was your age, 14, 15, I actually did my first, I think a year long, or three, (laughs) three years. And then one guy goes, so you lock yourself up voluntarily? And he said, yes. And then they all went, why? And he goes, I wanted to learn about fear and worry. And so I asked, well, is there anything then that you did that you could teach us? He said, yes. And it was so simple. He asked us to feel the body breathe and to really pay attention to the exhale. And then he suggested 
with every exhale, can you make the body a little more heavier? That's what he said, heavy. So we all sat there, just about nine of us. And then the only other instruction he offered was, can you say the word calm with every exhale? Maybe 10 times. the simplicity of it and it's kind of became my go-to when I'm in the dentist chair think of Minyar and go heavy calm when I got my vaccination every time when I feel fear or I feel like it's too overwhelming to just name it or be with it I remember a particular practice. Not that the whole thing goes away, but I found it helpful. So it could be a very interesting reflection, like what brings you calm? And I also want to invite you to pause for a moment and notice, is restlessness and worry present or absent? So I want to briefly talk a little bit about the fifth, the last one, doubt. I personally find that particular cha- uh, challenging mind state hard to see. One thing that really hit me was many summers ago in New York, I was teaching a group of young adults, 16, 17, 18, in a summer program, and I just saw so many guys, and I think we had the tattoo that said trust, no, and then the number one. Because that's the opposite, I think. Trust is the opposite of doubt. And doubt can be directed to ourselves and our abilities. Like so often on retreats, I would kind of come walking in here and I go, another 45 minutes, can I handle this? It's long. Doubting myself. I would also have periods of time on retreat where there was just a lot of fear and worrying and I was doubting whether I could hold it. But the doubt can also so much be directed externally to family members, to friends, colleagues, politicians. to certain systems and institutions. How the climate is going. And there can be very good reasons to doubt. So when you recognize doubt, I highly suggest also to listen to the wisdom that might be there before taking action. And in this particular context, 
The Buddha also talked about doubt in the teachings. There's some teachings that I don't fully understand. I didn't have any personal experience. And I've been doubtful sometimes around them. Now I'm kind of at a stage where I go, well, if so many things seem to be proven to work for me, let me be open to the teachings I don't understand. The Buddha also said, doubt can arise in relationship to teachers. Or to the awakening of the Buddha himself. And now that bowl of water, he describes it as... uh, placed in the dark, and there's a lot of mud in it. So how to befriend doubt? One of the things that the Buddha actually said for all the difficult mind states, as another way to be with it, is to find refuge in community. Very specifically, he said, See if you can ask or be with good friends and have suitable conversations. Most of the times, doubt is actually being pointed by someone else. I didn't see it. And I kept talking, and all of a sudden, a friend goes, maybe it's doubt. My wife sometimes says that. And vice versa, I sometimes see it way more easily in other people than within myself. The Buddha also compared this, ex- this experience of being lost in a desert. You don't know if you're going to take a left or a right. And very often it gives you a sense, I mean, at least for me, of passivity. Is that the right word? Passi- to be passive. You feel stuck. So I just want to ask you right now, notice, is that energy present or absent? Doubt. What I found extremely powerful is when there is doubt in me and it feels a little overwhelming, I don't really know what to do with it, is to find or look for something that I trust. It could be that calm, heavy meditation I really trust. I also now started to really trust that as long as I'm alive, the body will breed itself. We'll talk a little more about this tomorrow too, to kind of attune to impermanence, the flow of experience. More and more I start to trust that too. That everything that's conditioned is of the nature of arising and passing away. I find when I feel doubt helpful to inspire myself, listening to teachers, hearing or reading about the Dharma or other wisdom traditions. And I also sometimes especially when I have a hard time on retreats, I'll connect again with, why am I here? 
What's the aspiration for me being here? Why am I doing this? Maybe if you feel open to it, maybe connect with it for yourself. What is your aspiration? I think with doubt, it can be so helpful to find ways to empower ourselves again in whatever creative way you can do this. This is from Beyonce. I know I'm stronger in the songs than I really am. Sometimes I need to hear it myself. We all need to hear those empowering songs to remind us. I'm going to ask you to just sit for a few moments. Sometimes we simply need some space. And often when we create space for silence, we create space for ourselves. And thank you for your deep listening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.